You're listening to Backstage at Lyric, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes at Lyric Opera of Chicago. Backstage at Lyric features in-depth interviews with singers, conductors, and creative talents at one of the world's great opera companies. For additional podcast interviews, subscribe to our RSS feed or visit us online at lyricopera.org. Barbara Gaines, David Daniels, Thomas Hampson, Nadia Michael, Rory McDonald, and David Bevington are backstage at Lyric. Thank you for downloading this episode of Backstage at Lyric. I'm Roger Pines of Lyric Opera of Chicago. This season at Lyric, we're presenting two operas that are based on plays by Shakespeare, Macbeth and A Midsummer Night's Dream. To discuss these operas in detail, we presented a symposium on October 17th as part of our Discovery series. For those of you who may not be aware of the Discovery series, it's panel discussions featuring singers, conductors, directors, and opera experts. We do one session per opera, and they usually take place a few days prior to the opening of each production. The Discovery series is open to the public, and it's a great way to get up close and personal with our artists. You can check out our website at lyricopera.org for dates, tickets, and complete Discovery Series information. We include all of the Discovery Series sessions as part of the Backstage at Lyric podcast. The symposium begins with a conversation between Professor David Bevington, the University of Chicago's renowned Shakespeare scholar, and Steve Edwards of WBEZ Radio. Then Barbara Gaines, director of Lyric Opera's new production of Macbeth, talks to classical music critic Wynne Delacoma. In the final portion of the symposium, Ms. Delacoma and Mr. Edwards moderate a discussion in which Professor Bevington and Ms. Gaines are joined by artists from Lyric's two Shakespeare operas, our Macbeth, baritone Thomas Hampson, our Lady Macbeth, Nadia Michael, and from Midsummer Night's Dream, countertenor David Daniels, who's singing the role of Oberon, and conductor Rory MacDonald. I hope you enjoy listening to this audio transcript of Lyric's Shakespeare Goes to the Opera Symposium. And uh, welcome to Lyric Opera's Shakespeare Goes to the Opera Symposium, which is sponsored in part by the Catherine A. Abelson Educational Endowment Fund. And Kathy, as always, we thank you for your support. There we go, back there, I guess. Okay, well, Kathy, we thank you wherever you are. I'm Bill Mason, uh, Lyric's General Director, and I'm very pleased to welcome our two moderators, Wynda Lacoma and Steve Edwards. Wynda Lacoma is a freelance arts writer and critic who currently writes for both local and national arts publications. She was classical music critic for the Chicago Sun-Times from 1991 to 2006. She's also an adjunct faculty member at Northwestern University's Medill School of Journalism and Columbia College Chicago. She won a Lissagor Award for Arts Criticism from the, arts, from the Chicago Headline Club, the local chapter of the Society of Professional Journalists. Steve Edwards is the Content Development Director at Chicago Public Media and an award-winning journalist. From 1999 to 2007, he served as host of WBEZ's weekday news magazine, 848, which was named Best Public Affairs Program by Chicago Magazine. Mr. Edwards is the recipient of numerous journalism honors, including the Grand Award for Radio from the National Headliner Club. And we have a group of celebrated panelists as well. 
Barbara Gaines is making her operatic debut directing our new production of Verity's Macbeth. She's the artistic director of the renowned Chicago Shakespeare Theater, where she's directed more than 30 Shakespeare plays. Barbara's a recipient of the prestigious honorary OBE, that is, the Officer of the Most Excellent Order of the British Empire, for her contributions strengthening British-American cultural relations. Thomas Hampson, the internationally celebrated American baritone, is singing the title role of Macbeth at Lyric. He's earned enormous acclaim for that role at Covent Garden, San Francisco Opera, and the Zurich Opera House, where he performs annually in the world's greatest opera houses. Tom is one of the world's, music world's most successful recitalists and concert artists. Last season, he was the New York Philharmonic Orchestra's first artist-in-resident. German soprano Nadia Michael, one of Europe's most remarkable singing actresses, debuted at Lyric this season as Lady Macbeth, and what a debut it was. She also sang that role in recent new productions at Munich's Bayerische Staatsoper. Nadia performs in a highly diverse repertoire and has made a particular specialty of Strauss's Salome, with triumphant appearances at Covent Garden, Milan's La Scala, the Berlin Staatsoper, and San Francisco Opera. American countertenor David Daniels is internationally acknowledged as today's finest exponent of his voice type. He's returning to Lyric this season as Oberon in a Midsummer Night's Dream, previously a triumph for him at the Metropolitan Opera, La Scala, London's English National Opera, and Barcelona's Teatro Liceo. He's also renowned for the operas and oratorios of Handel and for a diverse recital repertoire, which he's sung worldwide. English conductor Rory MacDonald is making his Lyric debut leading a Midsummer Night's Dream. It's one of six works he's conducted at Covent Garden. In addition to the English National and Welsh National Opera Companies, he's also led performances at Glyndebourne, Toronto's Canadian Opera Company, and with many major orchestras and Britain throughout Europe. And Dr. David Bevington is Professor Emeritus in Humanities in both English Language and Literature and Comparative Literature at the University of Chicago, where he's also Chair of the Theatre and Performance Studies. He's been hailed internationally as one of the most brilliant Shakespeare scholars of our time. He's edited and introduced the complete works of Shakespeare in a 29-volume Bantic Classics paperback edition and the single-volume Longman edition. Now here's the rundown for the afternoon. We'll begin with Steve Edwards interviewing David Bevington. Anne Wynne Lacoma will continue in conversation with Barbara Gaines. Our artist and conductor will then join the panel with Maestro MacDonald speaking about Britain's opera A Midsummer Night's Dream and each of our singers reflecting briefly on the characters they portray in their respective operas. Then we'll move on to the panel discussion. And last but not least, anyone on the dais will be happy to take your questions. We'll be picking up question cards at about 3.30, so please be ready to hand them over to our education staff until Steve tells us it's time to do so. So let's begin. Please welcome Wendell Lacoma, Barbara Gaines, Steve Edwards, and David Bevington. Thank you. Good afternoon. It's great to see so many people here for what promises to be an outstanding couple of hours of conversation about Shakespeare and opera and, of course, Macbeth and A Midsummer Night's Dream specifically. We wanted to begin with a a little bit of context and a bit of history to place these two works and Shakespeare and their composers and librettists in context. So we thought, who better to do that for us than... Dr. David Bevington, and it's Thank a you, pleasure Steve. to have you with us today. Great pleasure to be here. Um, you have written 
and lectured and taught about this intersection of Shakespeare and opera for mm -hmm. years. And, and I wanted to know, what is it that you find so fascinating about opera as it connects to Shakespeare? Well, it's also a connection with Verdi, isn't it? Because uh, other people, obviously, um, Gounod, Benjamin Britten, um, Samuel Barber, write uh, operas for, on, based on Shakespeare text, but Verdi did three, and that is the uh, Macbeth, then the Falstaff, and finally the Otello. And he was thinking about doing a King Lear, which he never got around to. So obviously, uh, Shakespeare was very large on his uh, radar screen. And for, for, for an obvious reason, I mean, there is Verdi, he's the towering figure of opera in the, in the 19th century, and I think he saw Shakespeare as not only the uh, the greatest um, dramatist of dealing with the, the human heart, but also the one who plumbed it to ex extraordinary depths. One thing he did, too, which is very nice, he, he ranges around in terms of genre. If you consider um, the Falstaff as one of his history plays, because it is based on, uh, on, in part, on Henry IV, part one, and then Midsummer, which is a comedy, and then Otello, which is a, one of the tragedies from the great period, and, uh, and then Macbeth, uh, he covers the, the waterfront in terms of, of all the genres, and I think he saw Shakespeare as the greatest writer of, of light, funny comedy, uh, and then uh, obviously with Otello and so on, Macbeth, being able to pull all the stops in terms of, uh, of uh, the, the most searing of tragic emotions and tragic situations. You know, it's also <laughs> interesting because more than 200 composers have attempted right. to write operas based on Shakespeare. Right. And yet, if you actually look at the standard repertoire, we've right. got about a half That's right. dozen. There we are, exactly. Right? right. And three of those yes. are from Verdi. Yes. So yes. what is it that makes it so challenging to try and translate effectively Shakespeare in an operatic context? Well, one thing that uh, Verdi certainly encountered, too, is that it, the, 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 the scape is extraordinarily large, isn't it? That is, trying to cover not only the range of human emotions, but, um, but scenes. Now, in Otello, for example, he... Uh, takes a play that is set first in Venice and then in uh, the island of Cyprus, he very sensibly limits it to the island of Cyprus so that he can contain his scene more. There are similar compressions in Macbeth, although there he's able to deal strictly with, with Scotland. But um, and the amount of staging, the, the range of types of characters from the comic scenes, interesting that this Macbeth, he decided to leave, we, we leave out the, um, the porter scene, but uh, the kind of comic relief, but it's uh, it high, you know, high feelings of tragic emotion and so on, but, uh, along with some light-hearted comic scenes and so on. It just gives him a range to, as with Shakespeare, to plunge uh, sort of every aspect about human emotional life. Yeah. I want to come back and talk right. more about Macbeth, but let's begin right. Right. by talking right. first about right. A Midsummer Night's Dream, right. Right. which opens in a new production on November 5th. November, right. Uh, many people here are certainly undoubtedly familiar with right. the play. Many may be familiar with the opera, but... Let's set a bit of context right. because right. we have a lot going on in this particular play. <laughs> right. Let's come to the actual story okay. itself just right. to make sure everyone's playing on the same page here. It's a story about love, story about marriage, story right. about magic. Right. What's, what's at the heart of it? And there are different plots that surround each other. There's a framing plot about Duke Theseus uh, who is engaged to marry to Hippolyta, Queen Hippolyta, whom he has conquered, and the end of the play is the marriage of the Duke to Hippolyta. But meanwhile, there's also the business of the young woman Hermia, whose father objects to the fact that she wants to marry Lysander. He wants her to marry Demetrius. The play makes a point that the two young men are as like as pe peas in a pod, so it's not quite clear why he's so, so arbitrary about this, but a father's will is to be, must be endured. And so, so she elopes with Lysander into the forest, and, and Helena, who is 
in love with Demetrius follows after in the hopes that she can tempt, uh, as she does, uh, Demetrius out of the way, because Demetrius is in love with Hermia. So the play begins with two young men in love with the same woman, and there is obviously a conflict, although previously Demetrius was paying court to Helena, so that we work through all the possible permutations of the love relationships. Two men in love with one woman, then the crossing of the love juice we have at, at, at crossings, and uh, eventually we get to uh, two young men in love with the other woman, Helena, <laughs> and finally the love juice and a good night's sleep clears all that up, and they, 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 <laughs> they return to the configuration that they had. Meanwhile, of course, there's another plot. Well, there are two more to go, but the, the third plot has to do with the fairies, with Oberon and Titania, who are, you know, sometimes in production, they're doubled with Theseus and Hippolyta because one sees the resemblances, the Queen of Fairies and the Court of, of, of Theseus. But uh, they're having a quarrel about a changeling boy, and that needs to be straightened out. And it's straightened out, of course, by Oberon's, with the help of Puck, uh, putting a love juice on her eyes so that she falls in love with Bottom the Weaver, who is from the fourth plot, the, the rude mechanicals who are out in the forest rehearsing a play to be able to put on in front of... Uh, uh, of Duke Theseus for his wedding. And all of that eventually comes to a conclusion at the end. Uh, Queen, uh, uh, the, the Queen of Fairies wakes up and discovers that she's uh, no longer in love with Bottom of the Weaver and is reconciled to her husband. So it all ends up with the, the, the four couples being reconciled and the poor old father, Aegeus, having to, uh, having to settle for having his daughter marry whom she pleases. <laughs> so, I mean, a lot going on here. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> All right, right, so put this in context in terms of Shakespeare's life. This is right. in the early right. part of his career. Yes, uh, right. 1595, 95, thereabouts. Mm-hmm. And, and what, just, just about what a whole, a, whole decade on? before the Macbeth, right. And this is really about the time he's really hitting his stride. Before that, he'd written Richard III and some early history plays about Henry VI, which we don't see or read all that often. Some early comedies like The Two Gentlemen of Verona and uh, The Taming of the Shrew, which of course is another major play and was on recently at the Chicago Shakespeare in a fine production. And, uh, but Midsummer is, is, begins the, the second half of that decade, 1595 through the next few years, he's doing Midsummer Night's Dream, Much Ado About Nothing, uh, The Merry Wives of Windsor, uh, the, uh, As You Like It, and finally Twelfth Night, yet along about 1599 or 1600, but one a year. All of those are plays that you put at the actual top of the list of of his best romantic comedy. So Midsummer is more or less is leading in that pack. Yeah, and I've read also that Midsummer's place amidst that pack and amidst his works has, has grown and mm-hmm. heightened in status over time. Why do you think that is? I think so. It is, well, it's all in poetry, but in different forms of poetry. There, there are lots of lyric passages, many songs. It's an incredibly fine play as a kind of a musical. Uh, and uh, the wonderful productions as at Chicago Shakespeare Theatre have taken advantage of that fact. And, of course, Benjamin Britten is going to look at that, that uh, aspect of it, too. It's an extraordinarily musical play. And it just captures him when he's really uh, getting his stride in terms of being a superb poet as well as dramatist. I think probably no other play in Shakespeare in which you have so much superb poetry tied to the, to the drama which it resigns. Well, so let's it, make the transition, it, then, to now it's late 1950s, 1960, and along right. comes Benjamin Britten yes. to turn this into right. Right. an opera. Right. How does his approach to this work compare to the original Shakespeare? Well, it's also making a comparison to what happened to the 19th century, uh, Steve, because 
in traditionally the 19th century, we all associate this play from the 19th century with the music of, of Mendelssohn, that wonderful uh, overture and set of musical accompaniment, so, which gives you the sense in which it was produced that way, with, with little gossamer fairies with their beautiful wings flitting around the stage. It's all, fairies are very nice, and it's a, it's a kind of a, a, a fairy story, really. Yeah, and, uh, fluffy clouds. <laughs> Beginning in the, about the time that Britain shows up on the scene in England uh, and on the continent in the operatic world, the, the world of Shakespeare studies is being visited by Jan Cott and other critics in the post-war period who are beginning to look at Shakespeare in a much more dim and pessimistic view, including even a, what would seem to be a, one of his brighter plays like Midsummer Night's Dream. So he goes in and he sees that the, it's all about a, a forest which is very threatening, about lovers who fall out and hate each other, and, and there's nothing but conflict and so on. So that the, the, the modern idiom has been, and, and a lot of productions one sees uh, recently have Puck on drugs, uh, and seeing it as a production of the drug culture, that actually works, can work quite well if it's well done. So, so I think Britain is very much a part of that. This is a very dark uh, Midsummer Night's Dream. The music begins with the kind of, you'll be talking about the music, sort of gossandos and the orchestra and so on. It's, a, it's, it's, it's picking up on that sense in which the forest can be a very threatening place, and indeed one's internal psycholo- psychological self can be a very threatened space. Well, and, and, and Britain stays in libretto with Peter Pierce. It right. stays very close to the original shape. Very much so, yes. So, right. so what does is, what is that, that do in terms of your ability to really evoke that, that poetic language you're talking about musically that was in the original play that Shakespeare himself wrote? Well, of course, they have to... Uh, they have to shorten it a fair amount since um, they, you need to have lots of room for the music. So, but it is indeed uh, picking up things word for word. Both Pears and, and Britain saw that the text was perfectly wonderful for musical rendition. Uh, and of course, they were English, and, uh, and Britain is, uh, they were composing in English, and Shakespeare's an English poet. So the transition was really very easy artistically. I, think. I don't mean to minimize, of course, the extraordinary accomplishment. Quite the opposite, but but I think that the pathway there, we can see why they wanted to stick very close to that text. They knew this was a play that people knew well, and that it would work well if they could evoke the sense of what the play, what is really going in a very modern idiom in the play. Let's transition to Macbeth. You've already talked a bit about Verdi as uh, an interpreter of Shakespeare and as a composer in his own right. How does Verdi's Macbeth compare to Shakespeare's, for instance? It the, uh, actually, it's, uh, I was, we saw it, right, and I, Peggy and I, we just absolutely adored the production. It's just wonderful. I know many of you have seen it already, and the others will. It's terrific. And uh, I was struck with how close it is. Now, the, the program notes did a good job of pointing out that one thing they do uh, is to accentuate the roles of Macbeth and especially of Lady Macbeth. That They're obviously extraordinarily important in the, in the play itself, but you can cut away at uh, Macduff and his wife and some of the other materials. Uh, we see much less of that in the opera, obviously. Yes, fact, although, the entire although, scene with uh, that's the, right. the murder is just referred to, not, that's, not that, actually. That's right. And so they see it. And Lady Macbeth's role remains more predominant, really, throughout. She and her husband are more in touch with each other as they get on toward the end of the dismal end of the story. In the, um, in the Shakespeare play, I think one could say that there's a, there really is a breakdown there. When, when Macbeth hears that his wife has died, he says well, she should have died hereafter. That wonderful speech about... Uh, uh, about the life being a, 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 such a dismal prospect and so on. He really is, hasn't seen her. She's been out of touch. Um, when she wants to find out, he wants to do about um, Banquo, that threat of Banquo as the uh, apparent heir to the, uh, to the kingdom. He says, uh, be, be ignorant of the knowledge, dearest Chuck, till thou applaud the deed. 
So uh, she's really kept out of the loop by Macbeth in the Shakespeare version. I think that the Verdi had the, uh, the great... Now, one of the reasons for that, it has to do with 19th century staging. That is, and it's true, one interesting thing about opera and, and uh, drama is that, and Shakespearean drama, as the production values in the 19th century are much the same. They both, they're going after new audiences with large um, sort of middle class in England and on the continent. They can hold audience with thousands of people. So it's played very big, and you want to have, and you want to have, to have really supersized roles for your leading uh, male and female singers. And so uh, you want to pair the opera back, the story back, to be able to make room for them to be at the center of the limelight. And I think that shows up in, the, uh, in what Verdi wrote and wonderfully in this production. Well, I mean, so, so by removing some of the, the plot elements or at least the, the actual action of them playing out on right, stage, right. you get this focus on our two main protagonists, yes. but you also get this emotional power Absolutely. That, that's not absent from the original Shakespeare, but no, elevated. No. Yes, that's right. And continued more on until the end of the story, I guess. And of course, we all know that Verdi was really just uh, completely obsessed and beautiful, transfixed with the uh, the scene in which, the sleepwalking scene in which he's uh, with, the, with the doctor and her and her uh, lady in waiting there, and so on. Well, that he worked and worked on that, and it is one of his great. Well, and he also, we should point out, he revised mm-hmm. this. Yes, he, he did. He, he wrote he did. it in the mid 1800s. Right. Came back 20 years later. That's right, in 65, right for uh, the Paris production, right? Right. And, and what was the impetus for for making the change? Well, I, uh, I think it was the, his revisiting and seeing that uh, if he had a chance to produce again in Paris and so on, that this he wanted to make even more of that, of that wonderful one. It may have been, I don't know this for a fact, but it's, a, it's very much like that big scene in Italo and so on with, uh, with Desdemona's uh, uh, Willow Willow, which was also, again, what brought down the house, and deservedly so, so that I think Verdi saw pretty much in the same place, light in the play, just before the tragic... Uh, deaths of the, the two women and these two operas and so on. I think he saw an opera opportunity there to really build this up into, into the, theatrical magic. Well, and he came, I mean, he was later in his career as well. Yes. Uh, and, right. and, and, you know, this is also c- compared to Shakespeare. So we were talking a little bit about A Midsummer mm-hmm. Night's Dream coming 1595. Yeah. Macbeth comes a full decade after that, thereabouts, That's correct? Just about, yes. And so... In terms of Shakespeare, what's going on in his life and his career at this time that he yeah. is approaching with that? People wonder about that a lot because Shakespeare didn't write about himself at all. And so there are a lot, number of recent biographies. Stephen Greenblatt's is one that many of you may have encountered and so on. The, the, the general reading on this, as I've written about this too some, is that uh, for one thing, the comedies are well suited when he's a younger man. He tends to write about love stories when he's in his 30s and so on and starting off and in the Shakespeare theater, even the history plays during that period, or you get Falstaff and so on in the Henry IV plays. When he turns the decade into the 1600s, that's when he starts writing Hamlet, Othello, Troilus and Cressida, uh, King Lear, Macbeth. I mean, it's just staggering. He's writing one of those every year. He's obviously exploring the, the, the tragic depths. Now, this, it was about the middle of the 19th century, people began to wonder when they straightened out the chronology, was Shakespeare, did something happen to him? Was it a personal tragedy? That, and uh, Edward Dowden describes the man who, who starts, who, who goes out of the depths and onto the heights at the end when he comes back and writes The Tempest and the other late plays. Rather romanticized view. A little bit like what Sullivan, for example, was doing with Beethoven. That when, he was, when he was happy, he wrote major symphonies. When he was unhappy, he wrote things in the minor key. And, um, but that's given more to other theses that perhaps it has to do with politics because King James came to the throne in 1603 with the death of Queen Elizabeth. There, there was a... There, Earl of Essex had led a rebellion against 
uh, Queen Elizabeth and Sixteen won that was repressed, but there was a very tense time. Was England going to remain Protestant? Would it go Catholic? So there was a lot of zeitgeist at work in terms of giving Shakespeare a lot to think about. But I actually find it more attractive to think of him as he's when he get reached but the, the temp when he reached a Twelfth Night and As You Like It and so on. He pretty much had done what he had to do with comedy. It turned out these perfect plays. He'd finished with with Henry V. His cycle of history plays. It's at that point he turns to tragedy, which he'd been putting off. You know, there's Romeo and Julia earlier on, which is a wonderful play, but it's not quite like the later tragedies. It's much more funny during the opening scenes, for example. But so then you get, again, Hamlet, measure for measure, uh, which is not a tragedy, but a problem play, and Othello, then on to King Lear and Macbeth, he's really discovering his strength for going in this new genre, which he'd put off until, I guess, until he felt he was ready to to write major tragedy. And obviously Verdi thought about his own career in these same terms. Am I ready to take on King Lear? Well, it's a perfect transition <laughs> to the conversation here we're having Good. today and Good. the one that immediately follows ours. It's time now to bring up Wynne Delacoma and Barbara Gaines to continue their conversation Good. about Macbeth. David, thank you so much. Thank you very much. Very glad to be here and to continue this conversation that had started so well and in such fascinating detail. I'm going to ask Barbara the first question I think that, that springs to mind for all of us when we think of someone um, so well known in the theater making her debut in terms of directing opera. What's the difference? <laughs> Where's Bill Mason? <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, you know, in the, in the end, there's no difference quite to my, for my job because my job is to talk to the great artists that I have and to try and guide them, uh, learn from them in terms of uh, un- uncovering uh, what the soul of what Verdi and Shakespeare had to say about these characters. That is identical, actually. We, Bill just happened to throw in an 80-piece orchestra and 70 or 80 <laughs> chorus members just to, you know. But it, really, the, what I did is what I always do. Uh, so that was no different. I think that the fun of it was um, learning the music because um, usually I work with a composer, so we're creating the music as we go, mm-hmm. which is um, a joy. Uh, but I had no idea that uh, I would fall in love with Verdi's score. And uh, just being inside of it was a, a thrill. How, how did you get inside of it? How, what was the process? Um, <laughs> Jen and I were just talking about what is the process. How do you describe it? it it's, um, much of it is subconscious. Mm-hmm. I listened to the score for just for such a long time before I even... I, I just you just listen to it. You just let you in, you in, you sort of like immerse yourself in it. Mm-hmm. I watched early on three years ago. I watched some CDs. One of Tom, in what I thought was a great production. From where did that originate? Zurich. Zurich. Oh God, the witches were all in pink and <laughs> delicious, <laughs> delicious. As it as was he and his lady. Um, but, uh, so, I mean, I, I, in the very beginning, I needed to watch, I think I did this before I even accepted the job, I needed to watch it, since it was not a familiar opera to me at all, 
to see if I could if I could bring anything to it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And once I saw two or three of them, uh, Tom's was without without doubt far superior to any of the other DVDs I saw. Once I saw how bad the other DVDs were, I thought, oh, I can make this better. So, <laughs> so, that, so I did. <laughs> and I think we probably would agree that she did indeed make it better, those of you who have seen it. But I needed help. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I couldn't have gone into this world without that help. Mm -hmm. and, and then I got great help, oh boy. Uh, from wonderful people, especially Marina Vici at the at the opera, who um, sat with me for hours and hours on end from about a year and a half ago to you know months ago, and and gave me the immediate translation of each word. So, because that that was important to me. I mean, why would he give you a, a high C or a high whatever? What is that word that he was connecting with mm -hmm. uh, Verdi? So that was all really invaluable mm -hmm. for the journey. Yeah. Breaking, so you ask for down. help is what you do, which I'm very good at. <laughs> um, you had not done Macbeth, though, yourself when you accepted this job. No, I hadn't. That's right. That's right. So um, can you talk about, I, I think some of you probably know that Barbara did a wonderful um, Macbeth, well, a Scottish play. She did a Scottish play um, in January 2009 at um, Chicago um, Shakespeare Theater, and that was your, your first. Right. Did having been saturated with the opera, did that make a difference, do you think, on the way no, you approached it? No, it didn't. Isn't that funny? It, you know, thank goodness I knew the plot. That was a big help. <laughs> and, um, the, you know, it's, it's odd, but by the time I started directing the play, mm -hmm. Shakespeare's play, so many impressions were already in my mind about, about the opera. And you just put that away, really, because it's so different. It, I can't, you, just, you just went on a shelf mm -hmm. for a little while. And I knew I wanted um, Macbeth, the play, to be absolutely of the moment. Mm -hmm. um, my, the, the design ideas and everything for the opera are connected to 100,000 years ago on, on this planet and now. So it was a very different... Im imagery was so totally different. Why, why do you think you wanted of the moment for the play and more timeless for the opera? Well, because the opera, because the music makes me feel that way. I mean, the okay. play does. When you think about the, the, the psychology of these characters and you, you think about uh, what's happening in Haiti, what happened at Katrina, what's happened recently and is continuing to happen in the Congo... I mean, these are, these are very <laughs> heart-wrenching and horrific uh, realities. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I didn't want to... I, it's interesting, Tom, uh, one of your friends, the, your Mahler friend, the gentleman that I met the other day, he's such a lovely person. I, I told you this last night. He um, um, has two... He saw the opera the other night, and he has two daughters, I think seven and nine or nine and eleven, and he, for those of you who have seen the opera, he says, I could hardly look at the dolls anymore. Mm -hmm. The dolls broke my heart. I can't, I can't think about them. And that's good. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I, I guess I'm the, I know that our, my artists and that all of us agree that one of the reasons we do what we do is, is to hopefully, if we can somehow express some truth that's within our work, that, that there will be a ripple effect throughout 
the planet or the universe. And that ripple effect of uh, a reverence for life certainly, I know, was on all of our minds and hearts during the rehearsal for this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Were you leery about working with singers as opposed to actors, presumably, you know, the music is the most important thing, and we well, all seem to stand Well, I have some friends that direct all over the world, operas all over the world, and they told me the most nightmarish stories I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> I think there, was, there were moments of blind panic. <laughs> but, um, but I, you know, I've met Tom before, and was a huge fan, and then I met uh, Nadja about a year ago, and uh, we got on so well. I... I you went I out didn't. I, I just stopped. Yeah, I went out to San Francisco to see her brilliant Salome. And so, you know, it's not that everything was perfect in rehearsal. You know, the, the, the thrill of rehearsing isn't knowing everything. It's the discovery. Yes? It has nothing to do with knowing. I, I never approach uh, Shakespeare or, or this opera that way. It is saying, I don't know. What do you think? What's going on? How would you feel I mean, that's the joy of it. It's the journey. Mm -hmm. So we, we weren't sure in the beginning. I mean, I, we knew what kind of a universe we were going to be in. That was very clear to our Macbeth opera. The universe was clear. But, but um, I don't think any of us knew until opening where we were going to end up, which mm -hmm. for me is good, because otherwise, why do it? Mm -hmm. I mean, I, 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 it's the adventure. I, I like going on adventures. Were there any particular moments in the opera that, that gave you great difficulty? Yes. <laughs> so glad I asked. Okay, is Renato here? <laughs> our, our, our maestro. Okay, there were two things I asked him about a year and a half ago. Because I thought, okay, I can, this, is, this is the guy to talk to. So we had this wonderful meeting going over the whole score. And um, so at the end of the meeting I said, okay, Renato. I don't understand why the witches are so happy. They seem stupid to me. I just don't get it. And I don't understand why we have happy assassins. <laughs> I just don't understand the joy of these people. Call me stupid, but I just don't and understand. And you know what he said? I said, I need some psychological connection to this, to those two worlds, because those are the big gaps for me. And he looked at me and he said, it's Italian. <laughs> Thanks, Renato. <laughs> Boy, were you a big help. <laughs> so, all right. So this is so the, my own journey. Okay, why are we happy? The witches are meeting because they can't wait to get their hands on tempting. Seduction is very big in this show. On tempting Macbeth. So, oh, and the assassins can't wait for this, the dark of the night to come so they can... Um, you know, I just thought maybe there are people that love their work. <laughs> At least, all right, I know it sounds silly, but it helped me. I thought if they do love their work, then there is some joy in it. Then there can be some fun in it. Then there can be some actual humanness to it. Mm -hmm. If they're excited by their work, because I, I understand being excited by my work. So, so, um, so that's what we did, and it changed everything. That, those were the... That was really important, because then I decided, this is, you know, a year and a half ago at least, then I decided that those, the chorus would all be individuals. I didn't want group, I mean, I just didn't want a monolithic group. Mm -hmm. I wanted everybody's sense of, own sense of excitement and own joy and all of that. 
So, um, so and, and it also helped the, the Assassins, because <laughs> for those of you who haven't seen it, in the Assassins' cheerful music, uh, I have them pretending to kill each other. <laughs> so they're just boys having fun. It, it works terribly well, I have to say. I mean, they're really sort of like, like gladiators or they're like um, defensive linemen, you know, practicing before. Yeah, right. How are the bears doing? Right? <laughs> um, I'd like to talk um, a little bit about music in your productions at Chicago Shakespeare, and you work with composers. Why do you think that's important? Why... Well, it's Shakespeare, because his musicality is supreme, as we know. And I think that's part of the reason, maybe, that I, I didn't find the, little, the literal journey of the, directing the opera very difficult, because the music, the, the rhythm within Shakespeare is so profound, whether it be, you know, whatever it is, it's just mm-hmm. profound. So, so I have a lot of music. I, I can't imagine not having it, actually. I, um, Richard III... There wasn't much music, but there was this whole movie underscore of sound effects that you would have liked, Nadja, when I think about the piece you recently sent me that, that you did. So, um, so I, I just, I hear it, that's mm-hmm. all. I can only honestly say I just hear it and try and find it with a, with a composer. In terms of um, Macbeth, are there elements that are verbally explained in the play that in the opera are completely in the music, or do you find that it's a combination, really, of both? Well, I really like Verdi's version better than Shakespeare's, Ah. frankly. (laughs) I love the focus of it. I love that I didn't have to cut a thousand lines out of Mm -hmm. it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It was much less work for me. And um, which, in that respect, I I found... I, 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 I was so moved by the score, and the score actually told me what to do. And, and it's usually the opposite mm-hmm. in Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. So it, I found it much more helpful. There were many more guideposts along the journey. It was a... Well, to be quite frank... You heard it here Directing, first. yeah. I've only said this to myself now. It was... Directing the opera was a far less lonely journey than directing a Shakespeare play. Hmm. I don't have anybody I can go to for a Shakespeare play. I had hundreds of people at the Lyric Opera. What does yeah. this mean? Tom, what do we do? I mean, they were just always asking the people around me, and they came up with such wonderful advice mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and ideas, not just advice, great ideas. Mm-hmm. But it's, and, and, of course, the, 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 certainly the actors at Shakespeare are extraordinary collaborators mm-hmm. of mine. It just seems like there are a lot more people at the Lyric. What, what you, am, am I right? Yeah, hundreds more. <laughs> yeah, and Kevl, collaboration, I know, is important to you. Right. That's in, in terms right. of your process. Um, did you, when you were just beginning to think about this, did you have maybe a prejudice uh, thinking, why would anyone have to set Shakespeare to music that, you know, often... Oh, no. often um, Choreographers are sort of um, advised not to set great pieces of music because it somehow detracts from the oh, no, great no, piece. Oh no, 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 no! I love. Oh my God, yes. As a matter of fact, I want to, I want to do. I want to. I'd love to be a part of two operas. I think Cymbeline would be a brilliant. And Verdi, I know, spoke about Cymbeline because I think Gary Wills told me that. 
um, and um, about com- a com- you know composing for Cymbeline. And then I think Charles and Cressa would be an amazing opera. And so, I mean, I think the, the more the better. There any uh, composers out there? <laughs> you would have a director available. Yeah. And one last question I wanted to ask you: Would you direct another opera? I would. I would. Especially with Tom, with Nadja. (laughs) I would in a second. Thank you very much. Now, let me tell you... Let me tell you a little bit of what's going to happen next. We're going to have um, a pause, not an intermission. Do not head to the ladies' room. Um, This is a pause. We will be taking off the chairs, and then in about two minutes or so, we'll come back with the panel. Thanks very much. What we're going to be um, to review what we're going to be doing now. We're asking um, each of the um, panelists from whom you have not heard to talk a little bit, um, about two or three minutes or so, about their characters. That will be. Um, we will. We will first be hearing from Rory McDonald, who is our conductor for the Britain for Midsummer Night's Dream. He'll be talking a little bit about the opera. Then we will go to David Daniels, who will talk a bit about his role uh, as Oberon in that opera. Then we will go to uh, Nadia Michaela, who will be talking about um, Lady Macbeth. And we will end up with Thomas Hampson talking about Macbeth. So, Mr. McDonald? Okay. Um, So David's already talked quite a lot about... um, the text of Midsummer Night's Dream, and um, I just wanted to add a few more things to that. Um, it was written in the opera was written in 1960, um, and I think Britain had a whole cupboard full of, sco- of possible librettos for operas. You know, composers tend to get sent things from librettists all over the place. Um, but he chose Midsummer Night's Dream, I think, partly because um, it was written for the opening of the Jubilee Hall in Aldeburgh, or the reopening. Uh, after I think after renovation and um, you know they wanted something with lots of characters which his English opera group you know which they could throw themselves into Um, of course it's not a bad text to start with Um, and Peter Pears and Britain did an adaptation Uh, Peter Pears did most of it as far as I understand I think he was sort of considered himself the more literary one of the two Um, and it's a very respectful um, job. As many of you will know, it uses Shakespeare's own text, which is just, I think, just fantastic, because um, I think it's really, in terms of operas, it's possibly the closest to a play that there is. Um, we were talking about it in rehearsals, and one of our pianists said it's, it's fantastic, because, you know, he said you get course when you're at college or university you know you spend a lot of time reading books and when you're at high school you study the plays and so on and then you know you're in the music world and you're dealing with notes all the time and I certainly uh, understand that feeling of wanting to get back to words and and he said he was sitting there in rehearsals with his copy of the play and he said it's almost like having homework because <laughs> you know you were looking at the notes and understanding what he meant and it's also wonderful then once you go and see, when I go and see a production of the play, you actually, um, 
you know the text. You know, it's really from working on the opera, which is a fantastic thing. Um, the main difference in the in the opera, I think, is very interesting because the feet, the scenes at the start and at the end of the play, uh, which David mentioned between Theseus and Hippolyta, um, and all the stuff about whether um, Demetrius and Hermia are going to get married against <laughs> Hermia's will. Um, Britain cuts a lot of that. Um, so he, he starts the opera straight in the forest, in the scene with the fairies, and... Um, there's no overture. It just goes straight into the forest with the gl- strange glissandos that sound a bit like snoring, sort of very elegant snoring. Um, very expressive snoring. Um, and so he, in a way, I think you could say that Britain is, in a way, least interested in the sort of bourgeois human characters of... Um, Theseus and Hippolyta and that whole world, the world in Athens. He's much more interested in the fairy world, in the magic, um, in this world of possibilities where anything can happen. And um, another thing that's, I think, really interesting about this opera is that compared with some of other Britain operas like Billy Budd or Peter Grimes, those pieces, those pieces are often, uh, I think, in a very closed world, in a very kind of repressed world, uh, like think of Billy Budd and the, this ship in the middle of the ocean with its very rigid um, hierarchies and Peter Grimes where there's the mob against one man and you, know, you can't do anything wrong otherwise everyone will turn against you. <laughs> very nasty. Um, Midsummer Night's Dream, there's, all, there's the love potion, there's, there's a sense in the forest that anything can happen and there's total freedom and anything goes in a way. And he puts at the heart of the opera, he puts the love story between Titania, uh, well, Titania, it's called Titania in the opera because it's easier to sing, so they changed it to Titania. Um, Titania and Bottom, when, when, when uh, she's had the love potion uh, and he's turned into a donkey, that is kind of the emotional, the most beautiful part of the opera in a way, um, which I think is just a very interesting choice from Britain. Um, and why, does he, why do you add music to a play? Um, I, I don't know. I think uh, I remember once seeing a Frasier episode um, <laughs> uh, called The Ski Lodge, which is a brilliant little farce. It's an absolute genius episode, if you've ever seen it, where it's all swapping bedrooms and everyone's after another character, a bit like, a far, like Marriage of Figaro, people hiding in bedrooms. And, and I remember thinking uh, in the days when I used to occasionally write very bad music, um, I remember thinking that would be an, maybe that would be an amazing sort of one-act comic opera, and I th- thought about it for about half an hour, and then I thought, no. <laughs> you know, you can't, you can't improve on gen- you know, you can't improve on genius, and if they were singing, it would just make it not, not very good. Um, but, so it's hard, I think, with such an amazing text to, to make a great opera, and Britain somehow manages it. I think he he creates this extra layer of atmosphere and um, with the, the sounds of the forest, the very bright, um, almost metallic, crystalline sounds of the fairy world. Um, it's, it's just brilliantly done. Um, and it allows him also with the three different worlds, you've got three very separate worlds, the fairy world, uh, the world of the sort of rustic characters, the mechanicals, which is much more like comic opera, and, uh, and also the, work, the music for the lovers, which um, is in some ways a little more conventional, but then it, it becomes more exciting as they 
as they get drugged, for example, when Demetrius falls in love with Helena, then the music is kind of ecstatic and you can feel the love potion coursing through his veins. Um, uh, it's, yeah, it's a, so it's a fantastic piece. I don't want to talk too, too long. <laughs> uh, the, one other thing that's interesting about it is if you know the play within a play and how Britain does that, um, he writes parody of lots of different composers' music. For example, Joan Sutherland, the late Joan Sutherland now, sadly, um, she had just performed Lucia the previous year in Covent Garden to great success. I think it was the first with Franco Zeffirelli production. And so a lot of the music in the play within a play is sort of a taking the mickey. Uh, do you say that in America? Is it mm-hmm. take, taking, <laughs> taking the mickey out of... Um, poking fun at the love scene, uh, the, the mad scene, rather, from Lucia. Um, and Peter Pears uh, originally played the part of flute. Uh, he thought about, I think Britain maybe wanted him for Lysander, the lover, but I think they ended up, Peter Pears, interestingly, uh, anyway, gets up in drag, of course, <laughs> <laughs> dresses uh, in the play within a play, dresses as Thisbe, and that whole music is, is um, sort of in the style of Donizetti, um, also parodies of Verdi and, and Schoenberg. So it's a very interesting, interesting scene. Um, anyway, it's a wonderful opera, and I think I've talked enough, so, um, yeah, <laughs> move on to someone else. If you can. Well, you can just skip me now. <laughs> anyway, I'm playing Oberon, um, King of the Fairies. What could be better? <laughs> shut up Tom (laughs) and um, you know it's it's interesting with this role because it's it's not a role that sits particularly comfortable for the countertenor voice for me for for anybody I don't think there's a countertenor that would would say, yes, it's perfect for me. It's a very low role, very low tessitura role, and very simple. Um, and, but, but why I continue to sing it is because the entire opera itself and the way the character of Oberon fits into it is just so magical that I would never say no to this possibility. Um, the thing that's going to be... It's tricky enough with this because of the simplicity of the vocal line... It's always tricky to bring the strength, the, the menacing quality, the, the anger out into the, into the music. Um, in this particular production, it's even going to be a bigger challenge because I would say 50% of the production, I'm 17 feet above the stage in a cage. Um, <laughs> And so it, you, there's not going to be a lot of ability to, to move and for movement. So it's got to be really all about the words, all about the face and the energy and, and the music. So it's going to be a challenge. Um, bless you. Uh, and, um, you know, Oberon, as I said, it's, 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 the difficult part with the character for me is... Even though I want to be, I want to show the anger and I want to show the frustration and I want to show um, all that menacing side of him, you have to show that at the same time knowing and showing the audience how much you truly adore Titania and, and, and love her and are turned on by her. And um, so it's, it's 
that's the fun part about this as, as a character. Is there anything? I don't really know of anything else to say about it. It is a wonderful opera. It's a wonderful... And although we were only two days into, into rehearsals, I, I love uh, the production photos and I love what, what we've done so far. So we're really looking forward to opening. Nadia? If you, if you can talk about Lady Macbeth oh and your sense of the character. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so I should describe uh, my view on the part, or what, what do you expect me to yes, say? Yes, your, your yeah. conception of her, whatever yeah. you would like to describe. I think um, Macbeth, um, the, uh, so I talk about the lady, is, is one of the uh, most demanding soprano parts you can find. <laughs> there is extreme in, in each perspective. And um, we had a long conversation last year in San Francisco, and we talked about... Um, can somebody be just evil? Because it looks that she is just evil. It seems that it's just an evil person. And I'd like to see, in all the characters I'm doing on stage, I'd like to connect to, to the humanity somewhere. I have to understand the, the, the person somehow to, to, to show um, a real person, not just a, um, a caricatura, a caricature, what do you say? Mm-hmm. So um, we talked about that. Um, uh, Barbara told me that in the play, um, the lady said um, she was giving milk to a baby, and that is very much what I felt that in, in this person, in, this, in the music, in the person, in the words, you can find a lack of fulfilling, of um, being somehow settled in life, and I found a, um, a person which is um, in, in a certain delusion and um, bitterness and grabs for that what is left for power. And her only way to, to gain the power is, of course, her husband. And um, so she puts all the energy. And somehow I find, I mean, that, that was a long conversation between uh, me and Tom all the time, um, I found that there was also, um, there must be, there must have been a big uh, passion, a, a huge passion between them. And all of a sudden, or, or somehow, it just um, uh, is uh, gone away. So the, she puts all the, the delusion, all the bitterness, and all the, the um, power which life kept in her, she puts into the desire of, of power and she throws it over him and forces him to do what she might not be able to do. And I find in the partner I come to the music, um, I find in the music um, which Verdi wrote, it's going so far beyond the edge of vocal abilities that um, he wrote, um, uh, he was very right in, in saying, I, this part has to be sung ugly. Because there is almost not a possibility to sing it beautiful. There is, it's just not there. It is so extreme, the, the amplitude, to, to, uh, the, the, the top notes and the drama, which is in that demands such a, such a dram- dramatic power that you are always on the edge of the voice. But there are like three places in, in the whole opera where the lady is going deep inside herself. And you see a very troubled person and a very tortured person. And it is in the banquet um, when, the, when the whole chorus starts to sing. 
and and um, they get scared. They, they you see they are both so much in trouble, and their 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 humanity inside themselves. They could not kill it, even um, doing all the murders, and even go, even going further and further and further, and even now having the power. There were still the furious, I call them, inside themselves, the, the, the consciousness about this is not right what we are doing. And there is the possibility of beautiful lines. It's interesting for me that Verdi put it in there. And of course, in the sleepwalking scene, after you have done all the drama and drama and drama, then you have to come back to quite a lyric sound and to, um, to a very, um, as I find it, very touching and very emotional and very pure um, yeah, human being like um, exposure. This mm -hmm. is what I have to say. When I saw the note that we were supposed to talk for two minutes, I wondered why I was invited. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, <laughs> we are more than happy that you will not be talking. No, I, I, I'm going to get out my iPhone and time myself. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it, uh, I'd like to. I'd like to just kind of. It's been wonderful to listen to all these ideas and 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 learn from a great scholar. And, and of course, we have learned for several weeks from a wonderful producer, uh, born to produce opera without question. And. Um, it, a couple of thoughts jump out of me, rather than... Uh, I can share as well some ideas of Macbeth. I think we want to get to questions. I'm sure you have some wonderful questions, and it'll flesh out some interesting things. It is interesting to me, being a seasoned, experienced opera uh, goer and performer all these, all these years, that when we have moments like this and we talk about how opera is written and, and, and the inner structure and, and the struggle of characters and the use of words and all of that... We very seldom see that kind of dialogue reflected in the written reaction, not just criticism, just written reaction to opera. And then even in the opera world, you, you as a public hear a lot about the types of voices and the kinds of sounds you want to hear and whether it's an appropriate vocalism or the orchestra was this or that and the other thing. And I just wonder whether that isn't really caught up in pretty superficial weeds because, in fact, what we do day in and day out as, as artists, as as directors as conductors is especially I think in the opera world or art form is, is try humbly to decipher what has been left to us by great masters of word and sound and it brings me to, the, to another point just for food for thought that, that we are speaking a lot about great theatrical pieces being set to a musical context, and there's two aspects to that that I think are very important for reflection. And one is, first of all, no composer, not even the great Giuseppe Verdi, ever intended to actually musically set the play. It's the source of the opera that he wrote. And we know from Verdi's letters that he was, was unbelievably preoccupied from the very get-go of his life to the, to the very last breath of his life with with the quality of word as metaphor of the emotion and the psychology of the character involved. And the second point to that is that, in fact, there's another language going on. 
and I don't know if Renato's here today, but without the extraordinary guidance of, of great musicians that we have represented by this conductor here, uh, this whole thing would just unravel at the seams and be a, a, a very boring and awful performance. Because, in fact, the very tension of drama, the very life's blood of unraveling either the punchline of the comedy or the horror of dimension that a human being is willing to go to follow his own evil is in the sound of that harmony or the tightening of that rhythm of which we all as human beings carry inside of us whether you know it or not. That is the genius of music. So the art form to me is, is an extraordinarily wide, rich interplay of metaphor, of emotion, sound, and word that we as artists simply try to decipher and do the best we can on Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday or Friday or Saturday. And quite frankly, most of us would like to get past the rather knee-jerk ideas that this or that voice type is important or this or that uh, sort of cliché context is important and, and really hope that our audiences are, are meeting us on that tragic battlefield of human behavior, which is what Macbeth is so, uh, so inextricably woven to. And I think that's, going straight to Macbeth, one of the things that fascinates him about this character is, and I think one of the reasons why he remains fascinating is because every decision he makes, every decision that you partake of with him is somehow very much part of our own tapestry as, as, as human beings in any generation, meaning you, we identify with the conundrums of, of, of evil or ambition or, or the funny line, the devil made me do it, you know, that hearing, hearing that voice that, that precipitates sometimes the greatest of evils that we've known in civilization or the most banal of decisions of people that have decided to run for public office. <laughs> I think it's. Uh, I think it's very, very diff- I think it's very dangerous to, to think that we live uh, somehow separated from another consciousness that's imparting things. And I think that was one of the most brilliant things that Barbara said at the very first rehearsal. I do not want this piece to be about something other. It is about us. And I felt that very passionately in, in a lot of the evil roles that I've played as a, as a baritone, and, and sort of the quintessential role along that line is, of course, Don Giovanni. And Giovanni is inside of all of us. All of the issues inside of evil characters inside of all of us. And, and Nadia and I had wonderful conversations disagreeing quite, quite profoundly on some, on some motivational issues, but not disagreeing that, the, that all of these decisions have to be made about, out of realizable uh, human weaknesses. And, and in some ways it was, I think, some of the tension that you get, those of you who've gone... <coughs> Uh, is because I, I think if we actually kept fleshing out, we are not of the same opinion, and that's wonderful. And that shows up uh, on stage. I mean, we look at each other sometimes, and it's, it, of course it's, a, it's a, such a privilege to have colleagues that are so engaged in that moment that you're just playing on stage. Sometimes in opera, that doesn't happen. Uh, but it's been a, it's been a, a great a great pleasure and a, and a great challenge. So those are some of kind of the reflections. I, I think I would like to say that um, since there's been a lot of years flying around uh, here, I, I don't think we should possibly underestimate how the operatic theatrical world changed with Macbeth. 1847 
is just unbelievably early for this kind of, in fact, it had never been done, this kind of dramatic writing, the kind of detail that Verdi, even in 1870, 1847, was giving to the singers as to when to open the voice, when to cover the voice, telling you to scream here, cantabile here, sotto voce here. The detail that, that accompanies all of his writing past this point is, is, a, is a technical wonder. The fact that he revisited it in 1865, by 1865 we have two monumental pieces in operatic literature, and one of them will be surprising when I mention it. 1847, we have to think that Tannhäuser is 1844, if I'm not mistaken. Guillaume Tell, which is probably the first miracle after Mozart, is, uh, and that's my, not my words, that's Wagner's words, uh, 1828. You know, most of the Donizetti Bellini world had dominated the 30s. And in fact, were the most, was the most popular music on American soil. The most popular music of the 1830s in America, up and down on the East Coast. There were literally hundreds of, of, of opera companies predominantly doing early Italian pieces. Bellini and Donizetti were the taste. And if you go to Foster's Music Museum, emulating that as well, just as a parenthetical idea, Walt Whitman is discovering his ability to write poetry through recitative and aria. He adored a mezzo-soprano who, not romantically, but, but, but for her expression, her voice, Albanoni, who was very, very famous. So when Verdi writes of of wanting something ugly. He, I don't think he's actually describing, my personal opinion is not about, it is not about the color of the voice or the type of voice. He wants somebody who actually had an ugly voice. But that in fact, he wanted something that went far, far beyond the borders of bel canto. Mm -hmm. He wanted somebody, and he wanted this all of his life and all of his singers. Somebody, only singers, that would risk to find in their voices the way to express in his music, the emotions of those words that were catalysts, like, like bombs of metaphor. Uh, he was very difficult on his librettist. I don't want poetry. He must have written that at least 15 times over 35 years. I don't want poetry. I want words, sometimes one word that means a cosmos. This I can set to music. This is what Verdi was writing about. And that's, this is... Very exciting stuff. And Macbeth is the beginning of a very large iceberg that changed his life and, and changed, quite frankly, the face of, of opera as we know it. I, I wanted to jump in by putting a question. That, that a number of you have touched on at the center of this, and that has to do with opera and the notion of humanity and someone like Lady Macbeth that you were searching for, Nadja. W.H. Auden wrote, contrary to plays, this is his opinion, operas cannot easily present characters who are, quote, potentially good and bad. Who wrote that? W.H. Auden. He was wrong. Uh, yeah, what do you think? <laughs> 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 Sorry. Yeah, Tom, do you want to pick up on, I mean, where do you see Macbeth in terms of the motivation for his actions? Okay, give me, the, they, give me the quote again, what? All right, it is, contrary to plays, operas cannot easily present characters who are potentially good and bad. At the same time? Yeah. Why? Yeah. yeah. 
Oh, I think like and, Nadia, I think one thing I, I, I love about what Nadia said, and it's so true, is that if you're handed, if you're handed something that is predominantly on one side of the scale, you're going to be able to show that in much stronger relief if you concentrate quickly on the other side of the scale. I mean, let's, you know, Giovanni's a very good example. You know, there's, here's this amazing swordsman, and I mean that metaphorically as well as, as literally. <laughs> you know? And what we get, what we get is pretty, pretty pitiful pittance of this miraculous life for two or three hours, no success whatsoever, a bunch of, a bunch of billowing and blustering and, and going around and pretending, and, and if any success at all, it's because Leporello took over the job. And, and the most real moment of Giovanni you have is, is probably uh, the serenade in the second act, which is a pretty simple D major little, you know, ya da 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 dum 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 you know. And what is he doing? He's pouring it all out, death, life, love, sex, the whole thing, for what? A, a, a chambermaid that he's seen kind of through the curtain, you know, who we never see. And who does he talk to all night? Who does Giovanni talk to all night? Yeah. He talks to the gods. What is it? I've touched everything. It's been gold for 40 years and now, well, not 40 years, 27 years. It was a very young Giovanni, actually, in their minds. And now, all of a sudden, nothing happens. So, I mean, I think it's very important to explore. I would disagree with Mr. Auden with all due respect, and, and, I, and I probably would read on in the paragraph where that quote came from and before it to find out what context he really means by that, that we in the opera are essentially dealing, and this is another point that I think, for me personally, is very important. I'm not particularly preoccupied with plot in opera. I don't think that's the driving force. I think it's a mistake to, to make opera compete with film and television and even theater. I don't think that's what it's about. I think it's about dilemma. I think it's about confrontation of, a, of enormous, complex, emotional paradoxes of human behavior that are not solvable. They are only contemplatable. And I would suspect that's where Auden's going with this. I, I, I think he sees the art form as something slightly more this one does that, this one does that, rather than any particular character trying to carry that in themselves. I, I'm only guessing. I don't know this quote. Well, Barbara, and let me just... Could, I was going to say, Barbara, could you talk a little bit about that, too, because you jumped right in. Yeah, can somebody else say something? <laughs> <laughs> I warned you. I'm sorry. I, you know. It's why we had the two-minute warning. I don't actually but... care. <laughs> I'm, I'm certainly... I don't feel like I'm the person to talk about this because I've only done one opera. But I, I certainly, if, if the composer is... Complex. If you're if you're talking about a Mozart or a, a Verdi or whomever, I would think that that too. That, that you know what? Part of it, I think, is the way the opera was directed 20 years ago. It was more like Park and Bark, right? <laughs> <laughs> and and it's it's different now. It's very different now. And so that because the styles, you see, I think Gilgood said. That um, every 50 years, the style of acting, maybe singing, changes, you know? So I think we've hit, uh, maybe about 10 years ago, opera started, I could be wrong about that, um, changing in terms of it became more complex, character became as important as, or certainly important, maybe certainly not as important as music. But, but that kind of complex, psychological complexity now, it is in the music, is just you need great singer-actors to communicate it. Because there are people with phenomenal voices who, I'm sorry, they, they can leave you cold uh, just in terms of 
you know, watching them and watching a story being un- a story unfolding. And nowadays, we are very, very much more blessed with, uh, a, a, you know, a, a more overall talent. I, that was one thing I wanted to ask Nadia, um, because I know Lady Macbeth has been described as pure evil, but you discussed that, that there has to be some sort of humanity there. Talk about the, could you talk about children? I mean, the, just, just the subject of a child in Lady Macbeth's life, and sort of really... <laughs> well, we, we, we discussed it. I mean, I, we spoke about, I, I spoke two minutes <laughs> about this subject. Um, and I don't really know what more to say about it. It's just when uh, what, what you mentioned with the one-dimensional uh, view on operatic uh, characters, well, this is, I think this is not in the opera and it's not in the art. It's the one who is watching it uh, gives the, can, can discover the dimension or can't discover the dimension. So it's more about... I mean. I, I think in, in each art form, in each literature, in each picture, in each movie, it is art, and there is everything in. It's life, and life is complex. Barbara so. was talking about the process as a journey, as a process of discovery, and I'm wondering, this is actually applicable to all of you, but, but specifically, Nadia, what have you learned, what new insight has developed for you around the character of Lady Macbeth? as a result of being a part of this new production with this team? Is there something that's, that's evolved for you, that's, that's changed in some way, that's, that's expanded? Did you think about later? Well, definitely. The, it's always the case. When you work on, on, on such a huge, complex uh, work, masterpiece, that you never know enough. You never can know everything. And uh, when you talk to somebody who is so much in the play as Barbara, that d- d- unfolds completely other, other um, perspectives. But on the other hand, of course, um, nobody of us comes plain into this production. So I think we have done all our homework and, and have done one or two or even more productions, I don't know, so I think we all looked and watched the characters, the music, and, and even the play and, and the biographies of the authors, the Verdi and then Shakespeare, from many, many different angles. And, um, but I, well, Mason asked me that yesterday in the, in the Operathon, so what is the new, what is, what is different, for instance, to the production, what you've done in Munich? And um, it is completely different. I think when, when you're willing to throw yourself in, in a new context, you have to, to be open to new ideas, to other visions, to other partners, and that changes completely the, 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 um, the attitude. Sometimes it is a bit sad because I complained a bit. Um, I felt that we didn't have enough rehearsal time. <laughs> I just want to say it. Barbara told us she agreed. Right? <laughs> no, difference in ter- between opera and play. No, in terms of, of course, we know the music and of course we know the piece. But as as um, we have to get to to we have to get used to the to the set, to the new partners, to the production, to new ideas. And the parts also demanding. You have to, to find a new pacing and a new. You have to put your feet on ground on a new ground, mm. and that needs a certain time and it needs a certain um, routine. And I think we found it now. I think we especially are connecting much more to each other, and, and I'm much more comfortable and more convincing with what I can build behind the character. Mm. So, but what is different? I mean, well, it. it um, um, I think this production. Um, 
puts much more spirituality in. Is this the right word? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Spirituality. Yeah. And more is more. Um, uh, leaves many things more up to the fantasy. And um, um, what I very much like um, is that um, both characters are in a certain way, maybe that sounds ridiculous to you now, but both characters now are in a certain way beautiful to look at. And that is what you mentioned, that opens the scale to the, to the horror, what, what comes out when you watch more, more inside and what, what's coming out of those human beings. I think that, that um, makes it even more, more scary and, and um, Yeah, horrifying. I wonder if, if Rory and, and uh, David Daniels, too, can talk maybe about the way their conception of, of the piece and of the role well, grows or yeah. changes. Or, um, I was just thinking, actually, while you were talking, Nadia, about um, also what Barbara said about finding, in a way, finding the opera easier. I don't know if maybe easier isn't the word you use, yeah. but, but in a sense, what's amazing with these operas, and especially with Midsummer Night's Dream as well, is that the composer has already directed a lot of it. I mean, because uh-huh. in, right. in a play, uh, I don't have any experience of you know, working in the theatre, but you have to decide how you're going to deliver every line, the speed of it, the volume, the intention, well, the, the intention. Whereas with the opera, I mean, Britain in Midsummer Night's Dream is so specific the way it's written that you can, of course, do it many different ways and, and make some different changes and slight subtle differences in the way that the lines are sung and, and what the, whether the character's frying an egg while he sings it or, or whatever he's doing. But the basic thing is, has already been very clearly directed by the composer. Um, and Tom, like what Tom was saying with Verdi, it was the great master of that as well. Well, I mean, actually, I, I want to say one of, the, one of the interesting developments of late 20th century opera, and, and even probably contemporary, is, is like you said earlier, that, that Britain, in fact, sets exactly Shakespeare's words. This didn't happen in the 19th century. And the other title I was going to tell you that was a little surprising that I was referring to was by 1865, we, had, we were looking at Don Carlos already with, with, with Verdi, and one of the operas that made the biggest impression on him, and an opera title he thought about writing, not just King Lear, but decided he didn't want to do it because it was already done so brilliantly, mm. was Ambrose Thomas Hamlet. Mm. Now, Hamlet has no intention of setting the Shakespeare play, but it is all about the story. It's all about the historical figures. It's very interesting when we talked about Macbeth, and just what you were saying with Nadia, what Nadia was saying is that what was curious about Macbeth is that you, know, you, could, you could have all sorts of emotions about Duncan's death if you know the actual historical context, and he was betrayed, he betrayed his own people but came back, you know, in the Norwegian, blah, 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 you know, all this historical context. <laughs> and it's true, so you could actually, one could play, well, are we really sorry? I mean, maybe he deserved it. He got his, his deserving uppins at the end of a military life. Who knows? But we don't go there at all. In fact, with Macbeth, you have this, this, um, this amazing duel of, of personalities that actually follow their own singular tracks of destiny and, and phobias. And what becomes volatile is when they cross. And they cross infrequently, probably as infrequently as a, as a leading, leading team opera kind of pairing, as, as you can imagine. When they cross, it's just, where in the hell are they going from? And I think that this, this, this confusion, this... this you know, they're searching for themselves in this unbelievable self-hatred that is implied is just, is just overwhelming. It's exhausting. That's different than in, in your 
play set to music and, and Britain with a obviously different, a different uh, point of departure, but the, the relationship of sound harmony rhythm to Shakespeare's sound harmony rhythm is a, is, is a modern phenomenon that is, of course, in the hands, when I think of Britain, just astounding. And look how he went through his life, like, like Verdi did in his life, quite unappreciated as much as he is now. Yeah. Britain will become next centuries or this century's Verdi. There's no question Yeah, yeah that. I agree with that. And I mean, even, even in the smaller scale, uh, it's slightly boring point in a way, but a lot of, in a lot of stage productions, you might modernise some of the words in Shakespeare, like the, the hatred of my sprite is usually yeah. the hatred of my spirit. Um, but in the music, if you change it to spirit, it doesn't sound right. Yeah, you could yeah, change it, yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, you know, and you would say Britain might not have minded, but the so hatred we, of my sprite is so much stronger than the hatred of my spirit. You know, <laughs> the way the music sets, and so it kind of we had that conversation when we were doing that's that scene. Just, just the way the syllable falls. Yeah, I mean, you know, he writes, he writes, you know, four quarters and a. And, yeah. a, and a half note, so da 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 da, which is really strong rhythm. And so then we had the conversation: uh, should we change? Should we modernise it? And we decided not to in the end Good. because because we were worried that people would think Sprite wouldn't think of the soft drink. That's not what it is. So when you see it, you can. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'd like to I'd like to throw one more composer into the mix when it comes, and we've been talking about characters and characterizations and that is Mr. Handel because um, to me and it's just my opinion Verdi, Wagner, Handel are the three composers that truly bring out the human emotion um, dramatically in a dramaturgical way that that really touch me the humanity part of me Um, and in Handel it's you get the added bonus of secor recitative like you do in Mozart that you really can create a character and the characterization is created in the secor recitative and not so much in the arias uh, the arias are about human emotion and about and, and with the da capo aria in Handel you get to you know to, to intensify that or, or change it up so it's it really um, but to, to speak I mean I would as playing a character no matter what character I, I play I would find it very boring to be one-dimensional in, in how I think mentally about what I'm saying and how I'm reacting to my characters. And, and, and if I didn't, to me, having a, a, a human part, an evil part, a comic part, a, a boyish part, a sexual part, makes each part more substantial and jumped off the stage than just playing a character you know, the same way, one evil person. Mm-hmm. Even when I did Nero, we, we did Popea yeah. together in Munich back yeah. in 19... And, uh, <laughs> and, I mean, even Nero, who was such a horrible character and a horrible person, I mean, you still had to bring something human to him, um, something not just evil, or the audience would be... I mean, I would be bored, the audience would be bored. Well, and you alluded to this a moment ago. You're talking about... Steve, can we stop for one second? I just... An announcement. Um, We're going to be collecting the cards with your questions in about five or ten minutes. So if you want to um, think about your questions, and there will be people coming down the middle aisles to collect them. 
Go ahead. Well, Sorry. just a, you were talking a moment ago about the you know the anger that's that's sort of at the heart of part of uh, Midsummer Night's Dream in terms of Oberon's character in Titania. So, but there, you said, where does that come from? It's also we're dealing with love and a love relationship, so forth. So there's a complexity there. Yeah, but too, I mean, we all we all have anger in right. our love, right? right. I mean, right. you're in a relationship. There's going to be emotion and there's going to be charge. And, and here we're talking about you know, people that are that are have powers and are otherworldly, uh, still fighting right. and and. Um, well, it just come, but it has to come from an, a human emotion. It has to come from something that has happened in my life, and 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 to 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 make that come across to the audience. And what's this new production doing, if anything, for your understanding of of Oberon? Well, I, I, to be perfectly honest, I have I just got in two days ago, and the, the director of the show has not been here yet. Did you know? Did you know you were going to be in a cage? I knew I was. I knew I was flying above the stage. I didn't know I was flying above the stage for as long as I'm flying above the stage. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's, but it and looks just, really just cool. Another thing to to remind you that David will be back um, in May, in March. He will be here in um, Hercules. So there's a chance to hear him in Britain and in Hercules as Looks well. Looks in a cage. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't know. As Peter Sellers, you never know. <laughs> I, have, I have one question I would like everyone to, to um, respond to if they have some ideas. One thing that strikes me is that children are present in both of these operas. Titania and Oberon are fighting over a changeling. And the, the fairies in much of, uh, of the um, Midsummer Night's Dream are, are sung by um, Child's Chorus. And Verdi did not call for a strong child's <coughs> presence in Macbeth, but it is there in Barbara's staging. And I wondered if we could just talk a bit about the use of children and the endangered child. David, do you want to win? You, you win. Uh, yes, I wanted to talk about that and praise this production for that. I've, I don't, I'm sure there's never been a production of Macbeth in which there are so many children on stage and also flying through the air. And it's per- perfectly wonderful. This is, uh, I think, a major uh, contribution and innovation. The background, uh, we mentioned before that uh, I have given sucks as Lady Macbeth, but later on, Macduff, when he learns the news that his children have been slaughtered at Macbeth's command, he says... He has no children, or he had no children. So uh, this has led to an interesting controversy among scholars of, as to what uh, that comes under the title, how many children had Lady Macbeth? And I, I think that uh, turns out to be a rather fruitless way of asking the question. But what, the, what, what it turns out to be is a poetic subject in which children and foison and family and so on just extraordinarily important. They're there in the play, and they're less there in the opera. And I think bringing them on stage is just a perfectly way of trying to realize the sense in which this... One of the things that, again, particularly innovative, I thought, was the moment at which Macbeth and Lady Macbeth are having a kind of a fantasy, a dream, and then he's awoken from it by Lady Macbeth. And in that moment, you see uh, he has an image of himself, but we have an image of his being very tender. He's doing what the other fathers are doing. He's fencing with his son and so on. And it's interesting to see how fathers play with their sons in a somewhat different way than mothers play with their children and so on. Uh, so I thought uh, capturing that sense of reinforcement, of, because the play itself is obviously interested with flans with, uh, with 
Banquo and with Macduff and his children and so on. It's obvious that those parallels run across the various plots, and I thought this production was just a wonderful way of evoking that. So, Barbara, tell, tell about what happened. Well, thank you. Um, another piece of troubling music when I first heard the opera, because mm-hmm. it, <laughs> it had no idea what to do with it. But the key for me is that, um, yes, it was I Have Given Suck. And also, you know, there are points in all of our lives when if things had gone differently, it would be a huge sea change. I believe that no one starts out, of course, I don't know your families, but I don't think anybody starts out evil. And, um, and I felt that if they had had a family and lost it, there would have been such a vacuum, such a horrible vacuum in their lives of, well, the, uh, the death of a child has to be the worst thing in the world anyone has to deal with. And so, um, and so we put, I put that what if there. What if they did have two little boys and the two little boys um, are, are played with so beautifully that you have a, a sense in just a two-minute space that if they had taken, if those children had lived, maybe something else could have happened. Maybe they could have had a, a sweet life and Scotland wouldn't have undergone the tyranny that it did. I don't know. We'll see. Well, Macbeth is completely preoccupied right. with progeny right. all night mm-hmm. and the succession of his blood. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's, his, that's the ghost that is on his back. And the highest note I sing I don't have nearly the acrobatic horrors that Nadia has as Lady Macbeth. It is, it is truly, I mean, do not kid yourself. If you don't know this, you know it today. In any generation, there is literally a very small one handful of ladies that can, that can attempt and succeed this very, very difficult role. Uh, and we're lucky to have one of them, that's for sure. But, back to my high note. <laughs> in, the, in the apparition scene, in the apparition scene, after all these young, young, veiled kings of futures that he'll never see, and he knows that, you know, he says, Mori fatal progenie. And Verdi writes, Verdi writes that to a high G, which is a you know high note. I sing a lot of F sharps and Fs all night, but I don't actually go up out of the harmony into you know that one less. And he writes on top of that note with a scream. Right? He writes it as an eighth note in a in a very steady, long noted quarter and 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 dotted quarter note rhythm as a word. That things are pretty long lined and all of that. And all of a sudden he goes writes an eighth note, which is half of that note shorter. And he writes the fermata, which is that thing that looks like it says, hold that on the rest after the rest next to the note. Progenia! <sighs> but you're not alive! That's the next thing he says, right? So I think he's, I think it's, it's not to underestimate how driven, and I think 
in some ways, it's not just kids. It's not just the succession line. And that's one of the things, and I appreciate you saying about the Zurich production. David Pountney is an extremely brilliant producer. Uh, and being an Englishman and a, and, and, a, and a real European, perhaps went on more edgy sensitivities that we don't like to see. In other words, the blood was green and people wore really strange things and there were typewriters on the floor. And, you know, we don't like that stuff. You know, we want to we see weird but not incomprehensible. Anyway, it was a wonderful production. <laughs> it was a wonderful, I loved it. But one of the things I think David was so right about, and you two had completely in common, and I'm sure that you know, is that there is an, a continual abrogation of the natural life force mm-hmm. that these two people are up to. I mean, that's essentially what evil is, isn't it? I mean, we spend a lot of time in this country in the transcendentalist movement of the late 19th century. That's the heart of the issue of of Billy Budd. Is there abject evil? It's a question. If you go out of the theater asking yourself that question, we've done our job. There is no answer. It's a question you must ask yourself. And you must find your own answer. Roy or Dave, did you want to weigh in on on children and the role that they play in Midsummer Night's Dream? They're just really cute. I mean, they are so amazing. And the final chorus, where everything has come together, the lovers are who they were supposed to be with, the mechanicals have bought them back without the ass's head on them, Um, and we come out as the fairies and everything is calm, and I've, I've forgiven Titania, she's forgiven me, and the children sing the most beautiful chorus and Titania and I sing over the top of them, and it's it's a magical way to it's, it's beautiful. They're they're all going to have little um, light globes, globes. Yeah. little globes of light, and it will be dark, but with these lights shining in the in the forest. And uh, they sing this. Dave Dave said this beautiful. Um, it's almost like a, it's like a baroque dance kind of, mm. with harpsichord underneath, and mm. but it's has this sort of bounce to it, E major, absolutely beautiful music. And you know we had. To, some of the more soft-hearted members of the Lyric Opera staff were, had a few tears in their eyes, in fact, yesterday when we rehearsed it for the first time. So um, I, it's wonderful. And, and Britain, of course, was in love with the sound of um, treble voices. And, I mean, I remember singing as a kid, singing um, some of his uh, music for children's chorus, like the Ceremony of Carols, if you know that, and many, many beautiful, beautiful things, of course... Uh, miles in turn of the screw um, they and they they convey a sort of innocence there's an innocence about the sound which um, yeah, it's just magical I mean it's uh, and it's interesting rehearsing it because it the magic in the piece kind of transfers itself to the rehearsal room you know there's a I think that's the case with a lot of operas actually like you know if you're rehearsing Tristan or Pelias there's kind of like a grey cloud that kind of floats <laughs> over the rehearsal room because because the subject matter is so serious and kind of slightly depressing, you know? <laughs> Whereas with Midsummer Night's Dream, there's a kind of magical feel about it. And, and uh, yeah. On the subject of uh, absolute e- or abject evil, it is, of course, possible to play Macbeth that way. Uh, I don't know about the opera, but in terms of the play, the, the remarkable one that comes to my mind is the film by Kurosawa called Throne of Blood. One of the most remarkable interpretations that play ever sees. There's not a word of Shakespeare in it, but it really is extraordinary. Done in 18th century warlord Japan. The point here is that the way Lady Macbeth uh, is played by uh, his favorite 
actress. And her Japanese woman who, in the old style, she's confined, so she has to shuffle across the stage. Her completely confined. Her way of breaking out of this is to be absolutely fanatically uh, and madly determined to have power. And she is as relentless and bloody as anybody you'll ever see in the, in the, in the films. So it, you can go in that direction. Also, there have been a number of stage productions doing it in a kabuki, kabuki style where you have the witches on stage the whole time. And when the witches, uh, you can have them control everything. But if the witch goes this way... Lady Macbeth goes this way and just suggests that everything is under that supernatural supervision at every moment in the play. But that is a one-sided interpretation. I mean, that's a great segue, actually, to the notion of the role in which the supernatural or the underworld or magic affect the characterization and the themes in these two works. They both have that realm in common, although they manifest themselves slightly differently. What do you think? The thing is, well, that, that's so true. In Macbeth, though, there's, there's a real difference. Um, the witches merely say, uh, hello, Macbeth, you're going to be king. <laughs> they don't say, you have to kill to be king. They don't say, get rid of Banco. They merely say, if he had waited a week, Duncan could have died of natural causes. Think about that. <laughs> so, it's true. So, but I'm we sorry. wouldn't have any opera then. Yeah, right. <laughs> but they seduce him, just as all of us can be seduced in different ways. The witches seduce them. The question, though, is do the witches have supernatural power of what is to be? The play, I think, cast that spell that how would they know to be able to say to him that shalt be king hereafter, and then that turns out to be prophetic. Uh, how do they, not only how do they achieve that, but how do they know that they can say that and it will turn out to be true? How do you think that uh, works how out in they terms know? of the, yeah? I, uh, uh, mm, I think part of the fun of it is they don't know, they suspect, <laughs> because mm-hmm. if they knew, it's not, there's no excitement. They wouldn't be singing what they were singing. Do you know what I mean? There's, I think there's a lot of drama in we're pretty sure this is what's going to happen, but let's see how it plays out. I don't think... I mean, I wonder whether the witches had any idea just how bloody Mac, the Macbeths would be. <laughs> this is interesting because immediately now I'm thinking of the Norns, um, you know, in, in the ring, and the fact that they, they do indeed know, but they're helpless mm-hmm. to do it. They're helpless to intervene in fate. Mm-hmm. Right. Supernatural. Quite, quite interesting. They just put those papers in. Oh, we have questions here. So, Steve, do you want to start? You go ahead. All right. Let me start first with for David and And why? <laughs> because I'm singing it. <laughs> no, I mean, I, listen. I mean, we've talked. We've talked uh, the tricks about and how difficult of of putting exact Shakespeare's text to the rhythmic of, of Britain. Here in this aria. Um, he truly captures the magic of the soliloquy. Uh, um, I know a bank. It is. It is the the. 
the, um, the text with the most beautiful harmonic, um, with um, the celeste, with um, what other, what other, what else is accompanying me in that? There's a solo cello. Solo cello. I mean, it's, it's, it, it really captures the color of, 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 of Oberon seeing the bank, seeing Titania. Um, even when he gets to the point of where he's going to take the juice of the flower and put it in her eye and, 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 and the visions of everything, he really could not have composed a better piece of music for yeah, it. Yeah, it's a beautiful part. And there's a, those lovely kind of almost like, like Baroque almost, the There Lies Titania, that part. is beautiful. I mean, I, I also I agree with what David just said. <laughs> uh, so that's the number one. Uh, but uh, the second most beautiful part is, um, for me, the music, actually two parts. It's the end of the second act. Uh, the end of the... Yes, is it the end of the second Well, the lovers go to sleep. The, the child's chorus, um, on the oh, yeah. ground, sleep, sound, that is just the most beautiful uh, part uh, as the lovers are falling asleep. Um, it's, he uses the key of D flat a lot, and it's got this beautiful, warm, warm, sort of soft uh, character, that key. And you feel then what's really wonderful, the start... Yes, that's the end of the first act. Then the, the start of the second act continues from where that left off, and you just hear this quiet string D-flat chord. And it's just so lovely to conduct that because it, it just feels like, you know, nothing else, nothing matters, you know. It's, um, also, the music where the lovers wake up is very, very beautiful. Like, the whole of the the first um, part of the third act, the string music, is it's almost like, reminds me of the music from Peter Grimes, uh, just stri- high, high violin writing. Um, it makes you think of the very flat, if you've ever been to that part of England, the very flat sea that you get, and the very flat landscape in East Anglia around Alderborough. It's very bleak, but with a sort of beauty to it as well. Uh, so I, I love that as well. The, the next question regards um, uh, Midsummer Night's Dream as well. This is for Mr. Daniels and uh, Marie McDonald. Um, does Dream have a dark side or is it all comedy? Um, David? No, that's yours. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, think, I think the answer is yes, it does have a dark side. I think... Um, there's a lot of there's a big sense of danger in the opera. Well, and the comedy's got to come from that. I mean, that's what's got to make the yeah. funny is that there has to be danger and darkness mm. to to it, to the characters, to all yeah. the characters, not even the the bumbling mechanicals. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then the comedy comes out of that. If it's played for laughs the whole time, then it doesn't really matter. Yeah, I think especially especially your character, like Oberon. There's quite a few parts where he's very insistent in his fight with Titania, um, and also the scenes with Puck where he where he tells Puck off for messing everything up. Um, it's it should be it shouldn't be too easy the way that Oberon sings. And we were talking about it actually the other day uh, that his music is very ethereal, and there's a temptation to kind of do it too slow and and get a bit just wallow in the sort of beauty of it. Whereas actually it's it's quite unnerving and kind of eerie. It needs, to have, it needs to have an edge to, to work. In, yeah. in the play itself, uh, the Aegeus, uh, since he has the law on his side about his daughter having to marry whom, he says, as the, the Duke points out, the pen- penalty for her is to 
is to either to die the death or to live an uh, obscure life in a monastery or a convent for the rest of her life. So death is hanging over the play, at least in that abstract sense, yeah. as a possible. And I think also the, the scenes with the lovers, um, they're at the beginning when they're arguing, both couples are arguing, I think um, those scenes, the arguments are like any argument you would have in a relationship. And they're not about really big things. It's about, you know, uh, Hermia doesn't want doesn't want uh, Lysander to sleep too near her, you know, things like that. And she keeps saying, do not, do not lie so near, you know, go further off yet. And, and the, you know, there are arguments, but they're not exactly life and death, perhaps. Um, but then there is a darkness there, and then that means that then when, when that all gets resolved, and you, as I say, beautiful D-flat major chords and things, it, you do feel a great sense of relief, and, mm. you know, they've all ended up with the right people. Yeah, I, I was going to, to say in the, in the music, particularly the first few right. moments, I mean, it's the beautiful children's voices, but there is very bizarre, there is dark stuff yeah, going on and, uh, and also the way he accompanies that is it's kind of spiky, uh-huh. the music for the first children's, it's like harpsichord and harps and celeste, and it, it's slightly unsettling. And I think, the, I think he did have the idea that the fairies are, and Puck especially, are on the one hand... They're a force for good, but they're also a sort of mischievous, yeah. dangerous force, you know, in the forest. Gremlins or hobgoblins, which can yeah, do you yeah. a lot of harm, right? Yeah. This next question is for Professor Bevington, and uh, it's a two-parter. You'll appreciate it. Did Verdi take too many liberties with the play? That's number one. No. And two, how about Ms. <laughs> and, and two, how about Ms. Gaines? Ah. <laughs> always, always. Emphatically, Liberty no is my middle name. Emphatically, no on both scores. I'm not the only person who can have an opinion about that here, obviously. I just think this is a splendid production, and I think that uh, we're talking about, for example, Barbara's choices of having so many children on stage. That's not called for in the script, as you were saying. It's a brilliant uh, innovation, insight into the whole problem of children and family. So why not? Of course one should be uh, encouraged to to do that. And I I think that... uh, Again, if you want to do an opera in the 19th century, Verdi and so on, uh, it, some of the demands of big role for both the, the lead male and the lead female and a larger stage, there are the dimensions there that just require shaping the opera in the direction that he chose, and that's the reason it's so brilliant. I don't know that I would agree with, with Barbara's opinion that it's better than the, than, than the play. I guess I'm being a literary type on probably on the other side about that, but I don't see any reason to have to make a choice. It's just magnificent that yeah, theater history gives you all these choices. Well, and just to pick up on that, I have the sense from you, David, that, that you are someone who really loves and derives a lot of intellectual fascination and, and emotional sustenance from the various interpretations of all of Shakespeare's Absolutely. Work. I mean, right. the, the, the modern movie interpretations, uh, to, you know, you are talking about Kurosawa a moment ago. Uh, what does that do for you to see his work in different contexts and interpreted differently. It's just extraordinarily multidimensional and multicultural. And that very fact that uh, when these plays are done in India, for example, or South Africa, you get the most extraordinary new insights into problems that we haven't thought about. So that, you know, in terms of what a liberal education is supposed to be all about, the, the whole history of production is also, I think, liberal in that best sense. Question here. Uh, this is for the, the singers on our panel. When you first begin to study your role, did you begin with Shakespeare's play or with the opera? And if you read the play, what impact did that have on your performance? 
It's not a trick question. Well, it's not a trick question at all. Um, I think when you start to prepare a role that you want to avail yourselves of all possible sources of where that of where that uh, opera is coming from and, and the and the issues involved. If there happens to be high literature, then of course that's that's part of it. But in fact, uh, when I start a role, I, I I pretty much want to have the conversation with the composer first. I, I want to know where I'm at in that in that score and even orchestral score. And of course, I will read the play, uh, and you can get very valuable information, but. You know, to quote a very illustrious, famous, wonderful colleague who's long since left, um, Maria Callas, you know, you can subtext yourself, you know, right out of the opera. <laughs> so it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an important balance, but in fact, in a lot of ways, it, the opera world is so much easier than the theatrical world in that every breath I take is essentially given to me mm-hmm. by mm-hmm. the musical structure that the composer has written. And that's why great operas are truly profoundly miracles. And, and then there's a lot that aren't. Uh, and, you, and you work around them. And, and, uh, but it's, it is it's so much more of a deciphering process going on. Um, but for instance, just parenthetically, quickly, uh, Traviata. It's very interesting to me. And I, and I sang Traviata for a lot of years. Uh, before I ever realized that the whole confrontation with Alfredo that we know comes after that big miraculous duet in the second act with Violetta, actually in the play happens before. Mm-hmm. So when Germont walks in, he's loaded for bear. He is so furious he can hardly see straight. And that really makes sense of how Verdi sets that recitative. It also makes sense that for the first time in the whole evening, you've gone by, you've had a lot of wonderful turns of, 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 of uh, chromatics and, and harmonies, but in fact, the entrance, famous entrance music of, of, of Germont, lands what, what I sing, the first note that I sing, a, 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 a B natural, sitting in the bass is an harmonic F, and that's a tritone. The whole world changes like that. Everything we've known up to that point, and you know, crap's gonna fly. <laughs> you know, and I think that he did that. He changed the dramatic flow of the opera. I think beautifully, but he knew that information. So I want to know that information too. But my only concern is what is written. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, David. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Oberon actually was the very first role I prepared um, in 1992. I covered a wonderful American countertenor named Jeffrey Gull um, at L.A. Opera. And um, Lorna Haywood. Do you know Lorna Haywood? She was a soprano of faculty at Michigan when I was there. And she told me, a, a British woman, she says, you know, learn I Know a Bank, the aria we were speaking of earlier. She says, this is the countertenor national anthem. Learn it now. <laughs> <laughs> and... And so, but, but me preparing the role, Britain is so specific with rhythm that yeah. it was about learning the rhythm perfectly yeah. and then from that, stretch it and make music with it. So um, it was, it's really about learning the role from rhythmically with this one and then learning the opera. I have seen the play of, of Midsummer Night's Dream at Strathmore and, and, and other places, um, but for me... 
knowing the historical things and knowing the play and reading the play and knowing about this <laughs> historical character um, isn't going to change the way I perform it and sing it and bring it. Mm. I, I, knowing all that information is great and interesting for me as a human being, but it's certainly not going to change my performance of how I present the character. Um, yeah. Nadia? Well, yeah, sometimes it does, I think. Um, Okay. Uh, yeah, uh, I'm sorry. Wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I think sometimes it does really. Um, well, I, I don't know if my English is good enough to express what I really try to say right now. Um, I think, um, in fact, there are not so many um, plots around in the world. So I have the feeling that um, that's why I love the classical literature. I have the feeling that those great, great authors like Shakespeare, for instance, but also like Schiller or Goethe, or there are many, many others, they were like um, seismographs for that, and they, 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 they felt all the intentions and all the archetypic possibilities of constellations in, in, in our world, what we can experience as human beings, and they put it together and they created those those um, yeah, constellations. And I think the rest, what happens now, well, no, um, I, th I think when we see movies, as you mentioned them, or, or even uh, series in, in, the, in the TV, or you read books, and I read a book and I think, oh yes, this is Macbeth, or I think, oh yes, this is Otello, oh yeah, it's forced. And, um, so for me, it, it, is, um, it was very important at a certain age to study all these um, uh, classical literature. And I have the feeling that everything comes out of those um, uh, constellations. And the rest is so socialization, so socialization. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, so, so the surface around us is changing, but the inner, what, what, what is happening inside, is not really changing. So for me, it is very important... Um, to know the basis of, of it all. And it gives me a crown to walk on, even though, of course, as, um, as uh, we are human beings, our, our natural reaction to the music and to the written word is, is right the same and might not change, um, as you say, the way to, to, to express or to, to show a certain part. Did I explain myself? Yes. yes. Okay. <laughs> Well, I'm going to defer to you because I have a, a decent last question here. So. All right. Okay. <laughs> this is a question for Nadia and Tom. We're certainly getting a workout here. Um, given that the emotions are so extreme in Macbeth, how do you keep your emotions independent and from getting in the way of the vocalism? I don't. I've killed five people already. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I Sorry, Bill. <laughs> no, that's why we have insurance. <laughs> <You're> no. <laughs> How many of you killed? Oh my gosh. Um, well, do you have do you have a problem that you know? Oh yes, of course. I mean, I'm famous for that. <laughs> this famous interview in Germany. You, you haven't seen it. I'm happy. Uh, um, well, I have um, a great teacher and she's standing behind me even when I'm singing and she will always say, 
less emotion, less emotion, more technique, more technique. Because um, with all those parts I'm, I'm doing at the moment, it is so easy to just be driven away by the temper and forgetting about the technique. But when you, in these parts, when you forget, forget about the technique, just a second, you know, it just, you pay, you pay, you pay. <laughs> you think of it. Oh, and you will regret. So, but um, I think it's, that's why rehearsals, again, are so important. Um, yeah, to just um, adjust everything and to, to, to um, be able to express with temperament and to go in, into the deep, good but also bad emotions, um, but at the same time being able to, to sing vocally correct what we all would like to do. But I think that we have, as, as singers, we have to always trust that singing technically and keeping yourself in a way that's singing healthily, that the emotion that you're feeling inside your heart, inside your mind, is still going to come across to the audience, and possibly even more than throwing yourself all over the stage. And, um, and Certainly more. Yeah, yes, definitely. I mean, there, there's but never it's not a always easy to trust what's that. Been written. No, it's not. Yeah, there's nothing we can do on stage that is actually more effectful than what we sing on stage. And, and I think finding that balance, I love what you said about rehearsal. That is what really most of the rehearsal is, even if you've done the part a lot of times, is finding that form yes. of, of, of the edges important. you can do. And there's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of value in, in, like you were saying, David, you know, you carry all these contexts, you know the historical this and all. It, it fleshes out just the pure presence that you have when you walk on stage. You know whether somebody's carrying a great sort of cosmos of associations of what they're doing. But in fact, what we sing especially a master like Verdi, there's nothing stronger than singing it the way he wrote it and staying inside. We talked about that. We both, you know, don't be greedy, don't go there, just sing it, let the notes work, you know, let the voice work. Because it's, we've all been in performances where, where the performer, and we say mea culpa, but the performer doesn't trust that and goes too far. That's not what yeah. we want to hear in the opera. We want to hear the power of knowing where that edge is and yet and yet giving it that gestalt that the composer, I think, that the composer wrote. <laughs> Our last audience question is directed to Barbara, and I want to make sure I interpret this correctly. It says, when, underlined, you are asked to do another opera, which one would you want to do? Or if. <laughs> this this, this is very definitive. Oh, I, you know, I, oh, I feel so ignorant because, I mean, the, well, the first thing I would go to would be Falstaff or Otello. But, um, what, why? Out of curiosity. Atella. Yeah, Falstaff. Or, 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 and or. And or. Okay, but, gotcha. but, you know, um, I, I just don't know enough about the opera world to... I mean, look, I, I didn't know that Verdi even wrote a Macbeth three years ago. So um, I'll just leave it up to, you know, fate. We'll see what happens. <laughs> I, I don't know. Well, I think that wraps it up. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you You've been listening to Backstage at Lyric, the podcast that takes you behind the curtain at Lyric Opera of Chicago. For additional interactive content and to order tickets, visit us online at lyricopera.org. <laughs>